have a couple more folks trickling in, but I want to respect our time and get underway. Before we start, though, I just want to invite everyone to arrive a little bit more fully. So maybe just soften your gaze or go ahead and let your eyes fall closed and take a nice deep breath in. Take all those attention points that are pulling you out of being present here and gather them up and put them in a little invisible bag next to your chair. Please take that bag with you at the end of the talk. And let your heart and mind become receptive tilthy soil. Those seeds that Toby's going to sow this evening. My name is Ryan Johnston. I'm the program director of the Permaculture Skill Center. I'm also on the board of the Redwood Empire chapter of the U.S. Green Building Council. And I'm a lifelong daily actor. So really grateful to bring those three organizations together to host this talk this evening, following the permaculture principle to integrate rather than segregate. And it's great to have all of you, the communities that represent those organizations in a room together, and that each one of those organizations holds a different piece of this grand regenerative retrofit that stands before us. The Daily Acts organization, as many of you know, really focuses on home scale and community scale sustainability action and education. So if you're interested in gray water or rainwater harvesting or transforming your turf, or maybe you know a neighbor that is, send them their direction. There's a bunch more information in the back and they're also hosting a, a permaculture design course with Toby in the fall. Um, where I work, the Permaculture Skill Center is a five-acre demonstration site in South Sebastopol. Um, gate is always open, I invite you all to stop in and then take a look. And the piece that we're really trying to fill is supporting folks that are interested in applying permaculture and stepping from a place of hobby to a place of profession. And we do that through the pathways of agriculture with our farm school, which kicks off in two weeks, and then also through our ecological landscaper immersion and the, the pathway of uh, landscaping. And then also the Redwood Empire chapter of the U.S. Green Building Council, a national organization that completely revolutionized the green building industry with the LEED standards. Then locally, our chapter hosts events um, on a whole spectrum of different sustainability-related issues monthly. Um, and it's a great opportunity for progressive professionals to get together and network as well. So, so please check those out. If you're new to any of those organizations, you know, check out some of the other ones. And of course, deep gratitude to Mr. Paul Wallace and the Seed Bank as well for providing us the venue, donating the venue, to host the talk this evening. And I just want to give a shout out. How many folks are heading up to the Heirloom Expo? Right? So September 8th, 9th, and 10th up at the fairgrounds, it's always an awesome event. It's the world's largest pure, pure, pure food festival. And they have over 100 speakers, vendors, and amazing displays of squashes and melons and all kinds of other great stuff. So I hope to see you all there. Um, one other housekeeping piece. The restroom is right behind the screen here. If anyone needs that during the talk, you can sort of sneak around the side and make your way back there. And then, my gosh, what a great vessel to host this talk this evening. You know, we're sitting here literally in the presence of tens of thousands of seeds over 12,000 varieties, which represent thousands of years of co-evolution of humans. Stewardship, right? This notion of stewardship. So we're sitting here with these, these genetic strains that have been stewarded, as, as Toby's going to share with us, stewardship and application in a wider context. How do we redesign our civilizations back into this notion of stewardship? So 
I get the pleasure of introducing Mr. Toby Hemingway, which, who after you know, a period of being nomadic, settled here in Sonoma County about four years ago. And you know, for all of you, and it's the work of all of you that have been preparing the social soil, so to speak, you know, I think it's a pretty darn good sign when Toby Hemingway decides to call Sonoma County home, right? He's kind of an indicator species that there's something right going on here. <laughs> And Toby, you know, it's kind of a softball lob to introduce him. He needs very little introduction. He's the author of Gaia's Garden, which came out in 2001 and really revolutionized, or I would say opened the floodgates, so to speak, of permaculture in the sense that he wrote this really accessible and digestible book that took this heady notion of permaculture and made it really accessible to the masses, right? And in that book, he really focused on getting your home right, getting your home in order, Right, with this design tool of permaculture, a design tool that's based on a design tool for creating regenerative human development based on the patterns and processes of nature. And now we're going to take that tool with the talk this evening and zoom out a little bit, which is, I think what the planetary moment is asking us to do, right? Zoom out a little bit and apply that design tool of permaculture to the underpinning system, the complex systems that underlie our cities and our towns and our suburbs. Are y'all ready? Join me in a warm round of applause for Mr. Toby Hemingway. All right, well, thanks, thanks all of you for coming. It's really wonderful to look out and see so many friends and familiar faces and colleagues and former students and just a really great group of folks for sure. So thanks very much. Are we doing okay for sound in the back? Do we need to be a little bit louder? Really? Yeah, say what? Yeah, exactly. How can you answer that if you can't hear me? Right. All right, I guess we're doing okay. Yeah, I think so. And I'll, I'll probably get all excited and shout at some point. But. All right. So I did have to have the obligatory little bit of promotion for the two permaculture design courses that I'm doing in the area, one here in Petaluma. Uh, and then another one out towards Sacramento for those of you who might be east of here. So check in with me or some of the Daily Axe folks about those classes if you're interested. All right, so this book took me about two years to write, longer than the first one, a good bit of work, lots of fun. I'm so glad that it's out. And this is actually the first official launch event. And I just want to talk a little bit about how I got started doing this, how I got interested in this sort of permaculture. So I have been living in Seattle for a number of years, back in the 80s and 90s, and met my wife. She's not a city girl. She didn't want to live in town. We wanted to live in the country. Seattle was metastasizing into a giant city. And we just decided to flee. And we fled down to southern Oregon, outside of Roseburg, and bought 10 acres and really tried to do the back to the land thing. And spent 10 really wonderful years in the Uncle Valley, really, really beautiful land there. Had a lot of fun. But I noticed, for one thing, the first thing I noticed as soon as we got there is that I was driving a whole lot more. Suddenly my odometer in the car was just whirling around thousands and thousands of miles, lots and lots of gasoline. And anywhere that we went was 20 minutes away because we lived down gravel road. So to get to any place was a 20-minute drive. The county that we were in, Douglas County, is about the size of Connecticut. It's huge. And I had friends who, although they were still in the county, they were an hour away, an hour and a quarter away. So a huge amount of gasoline. And 
I was kind of wondering about this because I thought that you could live more ecologically living in the country. You know, city dwellers or resource gobblers and out there in the country were back to the land in a small ecological footprint. And I also noticed that the road that we lived on during the winter rains would lose a lot of the rock and we'd have to import between the, the other owners on our, on our road. We'd bring in 40 or 50 cubic yards of gravel every winter. When my neighbor got cable TV, they ran a single quarter mile line all the way to their house for one house. The pipe for our well, we had a shared well with a neighbor, the pipe was a half mile long down to the well. And I just kept looking at all this and just realizing my ecological footprint had like quadrupled by moving to the country. <laughs> and I know that it's possible to live with a smaller footprint rurally but that's not how American life is currently constituted. Only about 5% of rural people actually make their living from the land in this country. Everybody else commutes to work, and I'm not gonna include telecommuting, but everybody else, the other 95% of rural people have jobs, and that's the way rural life is, is presently arranged in the US. And we spent 10 wonderful years living in the Unco Valley and then decided, all right, it's time to go back to where more people were, just a whole bunch of reasons, persuaded us that we move up to Portland. So we lived in Portland, and my car sat in the driveway for a week at a time. The driveway was only 30 feet long instead of a quarter mile. We were connected to the utilities by 20 or 30 feet of wire and pipe instead of a quarter mile or so. I could walk or bike almost everywhere that I wanted to go, and suddenly my ecological footprint shrank again. And right about the same time, I read an article in the New Yorker by a, a journalist named David Owen called Green Manhattan, and he had had the same experience. He'd moved from an apartment in Manhattan to a house in suburban Connecticut, and suddenly his electric bill was eight times higher by doing that. Even though the square footage of his place was only a little bit bigger, and same thing, gasoline, everything else. And he pointed out that Manhattanites probably have the smallest ecological footprint of almost anyone in America, because a lot of them don't even own a car. It's the highest ridership rate of public transit. People live in very small buildings, and there are a lot of common walls, so heating bills are very low, and on and on. So it just made me really start to think differently about present-day rural living and present-day city living. So that was really the inspiration for just starting to explore urban permaculture and what urban permaculture could look like. So as a permaculturist, when we're trying to explore something new, the first thing we do is to ask, okay, what are we looking at? We do what we call the assessment step. What's up? What are we exploring? So here, what is a city? So just a few basic things about what I'm talking about. According to the U.S. Census, a city is a place where there are more than 25,000 people within a defined urban or city boundary. The more technical definition that I, I'm using really is that it's where the technological and social processes really outweigh the ecological ones, but a less jargony way of putting that is just where there's more pavement and people than there are plants. So when I'm talking about urban permaculture, I'm really talking about cities and suburbs and small towns as well. So anywhere, anywhere where there's more pavement and people than, than plants. One of the amazing things about cities is that they are places where we become more creative. Uh, a, a urban planner or an, or an urban um, academic named William Glazer 
points out that 90%, 96% of all product innovations come from cities, come from places of more than 25,000 people. Some folks at the Santa Fe Institute, a guy named Jeffrey West, did a study of innovation in cities and found out that we become exponentially more creative in cities. It isn't just that more people do more ideas, but we become geometrically more creative. In other words, a city that's 10 times larger than another one produces 17 times more ideas. And ideas are measured by things like patent filings, musical compositions, books written, uh, that sort of thing, businesses founded. And then a city that's 50 times larger than another one produces 150 more ideas. So we, it's this geometrical thing. And I think we've all found it. When we're around other people, we get inspired. You know, I get smarter by being around smarter people. I think at least it, it feels that way to me. And after a beer, that definitely makes me much, much smarter as well. But we inspire one another, and we do it in a geometrical fashion, not just linear in a non-linear fashion, but being close to one another like that. So, so the origin of cities, just a little bit of history then, if we're going doing this assessment step of what are cities and towns, how did they get started? The, the first city seems to have appeared around 5,000 BC or so, maybe as long ago as 7,500 when people were gathering in large enough groups to be called a city. And the award for oldest city is being jockeyed around between a whole bunch of sites in the Middle East and in India, so it's really hard to say where the oldest city is, but there are a whole bunch of them that seem to be 5,000 BC, 7,000 BC, that sort of thing. But the first place, the earliest place where people gathered in large numbers is a site in Turkey called Gobekli Tepe. And this was a site that revolutionized the way that archaeologists think about human history. It's, uh, it's 12,000 years old, which means that it predates agriculture, it's about 22 acres, and it was built by hunter-gatherers. It has roughly 60 of these enormous stone monuments that weigh between 10 and 20 tons, and they were all carved out of a quarry, dragged or rolled or teleported or whatever it was they used in those days to move heavy things, about three-quarters of a mile, and then stood up and carved with scary figures like scorpions and spiders and lions and snakes and things like that. And it's pretty well agreed that this was a place of worship. And it must have taken several hundred people a number of years to build it. And hunter-gatherers are not supposed to be capable of doing that. But somehow, human beings came together for spiritual purposes in large numbers. And that was the earliest large gatherings of people was for spiritual purposes, which really turns the, the story of the birth of cities and the birth of agriculture on its head, because the original idea that's been around for a long time is that we came together, we, we increased food production first, and that allowed large populations to form, and then we built cities. But this turns it around and says, no, we came together in large numbers first, and then we developed ways to increase food production to support those large groups of people. So Gobekli Tepe is really, is, is really revolutionizing the way that we think about cities. And the, the person who discovered this, Klaus Schmidt, uh, says that it was the temple first and then the city, that the city actually arose out of our, our desire to be together, and, and in this case, for spiritual purposes. So after a permaculturist has done this assessment step, we look at 
what are these things doing then? We know what they are, now we want to ask what their function is. So what I'm going to be doing in this talk really is looking at cities through a permaculture lens and offering a few permaculture tools and also offering some really cool examples of how people are applying those tools. But first I want to take you through a little bit of the permaculture design process, how we think about these things. And I'm going to be showing some examples from the book and some that aren't. But it's a little tour of how to apply permaculture to urban, urban environments. So we think about functions in permaculture. We think about, all right, what are the functions of cities? What are some of the common elements that we see in all cities? Because whether you are the ancient historian Herodotus writing in the fifth century BCE, or whether you are Bernard Diaz del Castillo, who is traveling with Cortez in the 16th century uh, in Mexico, these are all people who wrote about old cities and they see common elements all the time. There are always recognizable elements in cities. The first one of these is commerce, is people gathering to exchange stuff. And they're not just exchanging goods, but they're also exchanging ideas and customs and attitudes and inspiration with each other. So commerce is really in a broad sense of what all the things that people are exchanging when they come together. But that's one really important feature of all cities is that there's commerce going on. Most of the early cities were founded in very secure areas. We've got um, Istanbul here, Constantinople, a walled city that projects out into the Mara Sea and also the Bosphorus, and it's got some steep hills behind it, so it's very easily defensible. This is Tenochtitlan, which is where Mexico City is today, an ancient Aztec city. Uh, that was an island attached to the mainland by a couple of causeways, so again, very defensible, very secure. So that's another reason that people came together in cities is for security, both from the outside, but also because there tended to be more order and law in cities than there were out in rural areas. So protected from outsiders and protected from your neighbors as well. So another important function of cities. And then, all cities have some grand plaza or monuments or sacred space or public buildings, something big and grand, a place where people can gather, a place where we can be inspired by just the monumental works of human beings. So that's another important feature of cities, is inspirational spaces, whether they're public or religious, uh, private, just places that we can gather and be inspired by all the cool things that human beings can do. So if we go through that list, we can kind of come up with some of the important things that cities do, why we come together in cities. So there's the idea of security. There's the idea of all these exchanges of goods and ideas and people and all the things that get traded. We have community gathering spaces. We have inspiration, inspirational spaces to be, monumental spaces. And also the administration of the surrounding region is usually an important function of cities. Cities tend to control the region around them. So one of the things that was bothering people as time progressed, and particularly during the Enlightenment, uh, 1600, 1700 or so, was that cities also tend to be really messy places. Now this is a, a city called Sana'a in Yemen, but there are lots of places, lots of cities that look like this. And this really disturbed the rationalist thinkers of the, of the early Enlightenment days. They, couldn't, they wanted cities to be much more rational. And there began to be this movement to make cities much more organized. So we have Paris, uh, done by uh, Baron Hausmann. Uh, we have Washington, D.C., designed by L'Enfant. 
So we have this rationalization of cities. Suddenly, people wanted to make them more organized. They were crazy, disorganized places, and folks wanted to linearize them. And this really reached its epitome in the high modernist movement of the 1930s to the 1950s, the work of, uh, in particular, Le Corbusier. This is in uh, the completely designed city of Chandigarh, India, like, like Brasilia, it was one of these places that was planned and designed utterly. And it's interesting as an architectural monument, but socially it's pretty much a failure. Uh, people just did not like living there. All the interesting stuff went on on the outskirts. Or these monumental and really sterile visions that look good from above, but nobody wants to live in places like this. And this was really the epitome of the high modernist movement of this rationalization of cities. And it was taking over uh, one place that it was really, one person who was really responsible for this rationalization and modernization of cities was Robert Moses, who was in charge of the housing authority and a bunch of other authorities in New York City from 1930 until about the 1960s. He was, he was one of the most politically powerful men in the country. He could float bonds himself personally, just on his word, to build bridges. So he built uh, the Throgs Neck, the Bronx Whitestone Bridge, the Triborough Bridge, the Verrazano Bridge, uh, the uh, FDR Drive, the Cross Bronx Expressway, and a bunch of other expressways in New York City, Shea Stadium, the UN Plaza, Lincoln Center. This is all Robert Moses' work. This guy had billions of dollars in his fingertips. And probably more than any one person, he's also responsible for the beginning of suburban sprawl because he built all these throughways, these expressways going out into the city, from out of the city, in the suburbs. So here he is playing with one of his models. That's what he liked to do, was make a model of what something would look like and then bulldoze whatever was there, urban renewal, well, here it is, and then put up something that looked like this. So this was... You know, the type of work that was going on in the 50s and 60s that was being called urban planning. And fortunately, Robert Moses, at least for, for many of us, maybe not for Moses, but Moses ran into this. This is a woman named Jane Jacobs, who was a journalist, and she called herself just a housewife at first. She stopped using that term, though. She was living in Greenwich Village when Moses planned uh, freeway, an expressway right through Greenwich Village. It was the Lower Manhattan Expressway. It was going to knock out a big chunk of Greenwich Village. And Jacob said, this is what cities are supposed to be. These messy, crazy places. Jane, James, Jane Jacobs is, is one of my heroines, for sure. She's really responsible for retaining a lot of good qualities in cities. Her book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, is one of the classics. Anything by her is really worth reading. She was the first person to come up with the word social capital. That's where it came from. If you ever use that term, social capital, that's one of Jane Jacobs. She was the first person to talk about mixed-use areas in cities. And she really wanted to preserve the messiness, the vibrancy of cities by stopping urban planning, and she basically stopped Robert Moses in his tracks, exposed corruption in his office, galvanized opposition to him, and Moses kind of faded into obscurity after, after Jacobs and various other people, um, William White and a, and a group of others, got 
going against this urban renewal plan to try to keep cities messy, uh, and in particular, mixed use seems to be one of the things that really kills cities, is to have all one use, all residential, all commercial, all industrial. So Jacobs was really big on many different kinds of uses going on, multiple things happening in the same place, and that's one of the things that any whole systems thinker really sees as an important part of a dynamic system, is a lot of small elements that are dynamic and alive in themselves, loosely connected in ways that they can self-organize and reorganize, and that's one of the keys to good urban design. I, I like to think of it as design without design. You're just kind of setting up the conditions for cool things to happen, and that's what these mixed-use areas are, chairs that people can move around, things that can be rearranged. So one of the, these, the critical ingredients then is all these little pieces that are hooked together to make something bigger, to make something emerge from it that's unexpected. And I think this is a key to a livable city, and cities do this, good cities do this on many levels. A city that I'm really familiar with is Portland, Oregon, and one of the things that makes Portland so dynamic and so cool is that it's not really a whole city of 500 to 600,000 people. It's a cluster of 95 designated neighborhoods, and each has between five and 10,000 people in it. And five to 10,000 is the size of a typical village. Once a village gets any bigger than that, it starts being called a city. Portland is 95 separate and highly identifiable villages or neighborhoods. I used to live in the Brooklyn neighborhood in Portland, and I talked about living in Brooklyn, but I'd go visit friends in Laurelhurst, and then sometimes up to Alberta. But it was very much, you lived in this neighborhood and you identified yourself in that neighborhood. And each neighborhood had its own neighborhood association, so there's this kind of hierarchical or holarchical order where the neighborhoods are all separate, but they interact, and then they interact as neighborhood associations. And each neighborhood association forms a coalition, like each one of these color slots is a group of neighborhoods that is in its own coalition that has a lot of power politically in the city. So you can go in front of your neighborhood association and make a pitch to them, and if they like it, they'll pitch it to the coalition. And yet, actually, even at the neighborhood association level, you can get in front of the city council. But the coalitions are really powerful in getting in front of the city council, and they usually get what they want. So this is one of the keys to a dynamic city, is lots of small pieces that are hooked together, but together they can do things that alone none of them can do. And that's basic systems design, lots of pieces that can interact with one another. And what this does is when you have all the things going on in the city, ideas and people and inspiration and sacred space, they're all influencing one another and helping one another and forming this really tight, resilient network. So we're not doing top-down planning, we're really doing bottom-up emergence of interesting things when we're designing cool cities or when we're trying to undo some of the over-organization that's been done in many of our cities. <clears throat> so I want to revisit this list again, the functions of cities, and when I wrote out this list and when I came up with these functions and, and did research that, that came up with this, I all of a sudden noticed that there was something that as a permaculturist was drastically missing from this. Where's the food production in this list of essential functions? And looking at it from a permacultural design point of view, I can't arrive at food production as an important function of a city. I think it's great to do food production in cities because it 
keeps people's hands in soil, it makes us connected to nature, it supports local agriculture, it does all sorts of things, but there are a lot of things that it doesn't do. And I think that, that it just, it bothered me. I hate this stuff. I hate when I'm exploring something and all of a sudden I come up against some idea that I don't like and but I can't disagree with. It makes too much sense. If you think about urban food production, Land's really expensive in cities, and food is really cheap. So if you're going to grow food in the city, you've got to have access to cheap land or sell your food at a really high price or something. It's really hard to find good land in the city to grow food. The crops that actually feed us, the big calorie crops, like grains or squashes or dairy and meat and those sorts of things, they require extensive amounts of land. So you, you just don't get that in cities. The stuff that we do grow in, in, in cities and can grow in small areas for a lot of money are low in calories. You know, a pound of kale has 150 calories in it, so I'm probably not gonna eat 15 pounds of kale to get my basic 2,000 calories. You need stuff that takes larger amounts of land. You can grow small amounts of vegetables, and a lot of cities do grow high-value vegetables. That, that does make sense, but it's really expensive food, so it's hard for urban food to feed low-income people in the cities because we have to charge so much for it. It has to be subsidized. All the stuff we need to do farming in the city has to be imported to feed and fertilizer, at least the way the system is worked up these days. We generate a lot of fertilizer in cities in terms of human waste, but we're not recycling it in the cities. And the soil in cities and the air in cities is pretty dirty. It's not really a good place to grow food. So it's hard by permaculture design, by ecological design, to arrive at food production as an important function of cities. Nevertheless, I, I would impose it on cities because it has so many other advantages of, as I say, con connecting us to the land, helping to build a healthier large-scale food network. But this really bothered me. And I, I know we're gonna spend a lot of effort growing food in cities, but most food production is done outside of cities. The city boundary is not really a good ecological unit. You know, the soil changes at property property lines. You run into you know, there's just there's a lot of reasons not to be growing food in cities in large scale. It's really difficult to justify. Another piece is that we talk about food miles. The the typical American salad travels 1,500 miles to its destination. It turns out that. The energy footprint of food is a very, very small part of all the energy, the transport of food is a teeny part of the energy involved in, in growing food and getting food to us. Uh, some folks, um, Weber and Matthews did a study showing that 84% of all the energy used in providing food is on-farm energy. Food transport only requires about, only takes 4% of the energy involved in, in producing food. So if we're focusing on the transport of food as a leverage point, it's not going to be a very good one to shrink its, its uh, energy footprint. We've got to focus on farm production if we want to actually shrink the energy footprint of food. So worrying about food miles is actually kind of a distraction. I think there are other reasons to have local food, absolutely, but it's a teeny piece of the energy footprint of food is the actual trucking and transportation of food. If you look at a typical ancient city, there's kind of no room for growing food here. This is Damascus, and this is what most cities look like. You know, they are very full of people-oriented things. So here is the pattern of a city or a town with fields around it. 
And that is the way most cities were up until oil took over the food system, really until about the 1960s. You probably noticed that New Jersey's license plate says the Garden State, which just seems completely insane, until you realize that it was the truck gardens of New Jersey that fed New York City up until the 1960s or so, when oil took over and California started sending all our food to New Jersey and every place else. So that was the pattern for most cities, was New York City was fed by farmers in Connecticut, New Jersey, and rural New York, and up until the 1960s, that was the way most cities were fed, was by farmers who lived around the cities, and it's just cheap, abundant oil that's gotten us away from that pattern, and if we no longer have cheap, abundant oil, I think we will probably return to that pattern. And one of the other terms that Jane Jacobs uses is that she talks about city regions, and this is the great piece, I think, about having rural areas that are connected to cities by food production by having the food for your city be right outside your city. You don't have to read the fine print here, uh, but it's basically the idea. One of the things Jacobs discovered was that vibrant regions, meaning the whole bioregion or the entire area around, you know, just large areas, the vibrant ones all had really vibrant cities in them. You could have rural areas that were rich in mines, rich in soil, rich in agricultural production, but they could very much be very depressed areas if the city that was at their core was a depressed city. But it's the city that seems to influence the region around it rather than the region influencing the city. So the point is to build a really good city-rural connection to have vibrant cities and make sure that those cities are well connected to rural areas so that we have these really dynamic city regions. The city supports the hinterland. We have to also remember, this is from another presentation, but another reason to have cities connected to the rural areas because people who live in cities and never get out are crazy. Well, these, this is the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and these people look nuts to me. Anyone working in this environment is gonna go crazy. And there, there have been some really interesting discussions in the blogosphere lately about that disconnection from nature, that, that if you're living in a purely intellectual, cerebral environment, you don't get any feedback from the real world, from nature, that you might be going off in a crazy tangent. I think this is part of the reason that we have this obsession with a growth economy. Anyone who goes out in nature knows that nothing grows forever. But if you're living all in your head and you're thinking of you know, economics and how can I have more and all that sort of thing, you could come up with the idea that we could have infinite growth. So I think we do these crazy things when we don't get out and connect ourselves to the real feedback that nature gives us. There are hard and fast real boundaries that we don't see in our minds. So getting out in nature is a really, really important thing no matter where we're living. So there's, there's a new flip of the word urban agriculture. Folks are talking about agricultural urbanism. They're really putting the, the, the emphasis on the word agriculture. Uh, this is a drawing by the, the prominent architectural firm of Duani Plotter Zyber, who's done a lot of new, new urbanism work. And it's a little too rectilinear for me, but it does show the, the decreasing density and increasing rural influence cities with permeable boundaries cities that allow the rural area to interact with, with the, urban, the urban core. And these are the sorts of cities that I'm, I'm interested in, is places where there are good exchanges between what's happening in the city and what's outside. 
So I want to do a few, a, a look at some of permaculture's tools and some examples of like how, how permaculture tools apply really well to urban environments, because we mostly thought of them as for farms and gardens, but they really apply very well to, to places where people live and to what we call the invisible structures, the human side of culture, as opposed to the, uh, the land side and the, the machinery side. So one of permaculture's tools is something that we call zones. We talk about the zone system, and I know many of you are familiar with this. And that when we're talking about landscape design, we, we talk about the stuff you use the most should go closest to where you are, right? It's just, it's a very logical thing that you should plant your salad bed right outside your kitchen door so that you only have to walk about three feet to get a good salad. And the production crops can go a little further away, the pasture animals can go further away than that out in outer zones. So it, all this is is frequency of use, that when you're, if you use something a lot, it should go close to where you are. So if we're talking about trying to create strong regional food sheds, trying to shrink our food shed from buying strawberries from Chile in the wintertime and that sort of thing to a food shed that is right around us, if we're trying to make a smaller, more resilient food shed and keep our money in a local economy, the permaculture zone system is a really good tool for doing this. So we think of the stuff closest to us, the stuff that we would rely on as much as we can would be our own garden. If you're a gardener, if you're not a gardener, don't worry about this. You would say, all right, I'm trying to grow as much as my, of my own food as is appropriate. You don't have to set a limit of I need to grow 80%. What makes sense for you to grow if you have a garden? really expensive crops, things that grow really well in your area, stuff that you really like to eat, but you get some of your food from your garden. And then, so that's zone one, that's really close to you. Then if you can't meet all your food needs from your garden, you do things like community-supported agriculture and community gardens, things that are right around you where you can actually either grow it yourself or you can talk right to the people growing it so you have a lot of control over your food system. If you can't meet all your foods there, all your food needs there, you go out to the farmer's market where, you, again, you can talk to the farmers even though you're not out at the farm, but you can have a lot of influence over them, have a lot to say about what your food system looks like. And if you can't meet all your food needs in zones one, two, and three, then you go out to independent groceries that focus, that support local agriculture. You'll probably be able to meet all your food needs in those four zones, but if you can't, that's when you go out to the chain stores, the big box stores, you sneak into Costco and hope that none of your green friends see you there, that sort of thing. But we try to go there as rarely as possible. You know, I showed this slide to someone, uh, I guess I was out in a course run by Starhawk, and I was showing the slide, someone said, you know, there's a whole lot of privilege in this. These three zones, you know, the urban poor don't get that. You know, maybe they could shop there, maybe, but it's too expensive. They're gonna, you know, this is, this is all for the privilege. And it made me realize that identifies a leverage point. This is where we need to be working in food deserts. These are the things we need to be providing that need to be created in food deserts in underserved areas. It immediately identified those are the leverage points to bring a resilient food shed to people in underserved areas, uh, to the less privileged folks. So I want to show how this same system, these zones, these concentric circles, these regions of use, applies in a whole bunch of different ways. Like I think of a zone system in terms of relationships, my personal relationships. Like zone one is my spouse or my partner, right, right there, you know, with me all the time, really close in zone one. Then close family, children living at home or other relatives living at home would be in your zone two.
two, close friends are in zone three or colleagues that you spend a lot of time with. Zone four would be casual acquaintances and colleagues that you don't see that often. And then zone five would be people who you rarely encounter. So here we're moving away from landscape as a zone system into the more human side of things. Permaculture zones can be applied all over the place in human systems as, as well as in ecological or land-based systems. So it's a really flexible tool. So another example would be, say, staffing a nonprofit. What are the roles in a nonprofit in a zone system? You've got a board of directors, or the ED would be zone one, kind of the, they're, they're right on it, they're the most engaged with the organization. And then the staff would be next, and then probably donors would be the next most involved. The volunteers who work for that, who help out that nonprofit would be zone four, and then the community served would be zone five. Or same example for in a school. So you've got the administrators or school board would be zone one, the faculty would be zone two, students zone three. This is all frequency of use and intensity of management and who is there the most, who's the busiest and most engaged in it, going from one to five. Then one last example of how we can apply the zone system. I want to give a tip of the hat to my friend Michael Becker who came up with this. He's a brilliant school teacher up in Oregon who has applied permaculture to the complete school curriculum. And he talks about, we, we've all heard the phrase comfort zones. He applies it to education in that it's really hard for us to learn things when we're uncomfortable, when we're scared, when we're trying something so new and weird that we, you know, we're trying to soothe ourselves. It's very difficult to learn unless you can be in a relatively comfortable space. And so Michael talks about comfort zones in terms of education and learning. And uh, so zone one would be really familiar activity, stuff that we're just totally comfortable with, we know how to do well, we don't even think twice, we can do it in our sleep. So zone one would be really familiar activities. Zone two would be things that are a little novel, but they're not really stressful. We're okay trying something new and it feels good and it doesn't stress us out. Then zone three would be activities that they're a little challenging for us, but we want to do it. We can see the benefit and we want to do it. We're going to put ourselves through, you know, learning the new language and being awkward at it for a little while or picking up, a, you know, the saxophone and making horrible noises for a little while, but it's worth it. And then zone four would be activities that we really don't want to do, but we got to do it. You know, something that we're kind of being forced or compelled to do for some reason. And then zone five are activities where we'd rather die than do that. It's like, I'm not going to do that. So Michael tells a great story of how he used this system to his benefit. He uh, had been going out with women for a while, and they were getting pretty serious. He also was pretty nomadic at the time, and he was doing his laundry in laundromats a lot, and his mother hated that idea, just the idea that Michael was washing his clothes in washing machines that had someone else's dirty underwear in it, and that's what he did. And that was kind of zone four or zone five activity for Michael's mother. And when he and, and when Michael and Meg decided to move in with each other, he knew that was going to be another sort of stressful and comfortable thing to tell his mother about. And so when he announced that they were moving in together, he said, Mom, Meg and I are moving in together, but into a house that's got a washing machine. And his mother was so relieved to hear about the new laundry situation that the whole moving in with someone kind of just went right by her. So this is how we can connect these zones together in learning situations, attaching the familiar with the unfamiliar. But these are some of the many ways that permaculture tools can be used that don't just apply to landscape. 
And then another permaculture tool are sectors, which are influences from off the site, like hot winds, or a fire sector, or shade, or wildlife moving through, that sort of thing, or a good view. Things that you can't control yourself, you can only arrange your design elements in the right relationship with, that you can't turn off the sun, that you can make some shade, or you can put up a solar collector, that sort of thing. So in urban areas, the sectors are really interesting. They're, they're very complex. And this is an example of design done by a friend of mine, Larry Santoyo, down in Morro Bay. And two things were going on here. It was near the ocean, so this very cold west wind blowing through all the time. And the women who lived here really loved to garden, but that made for an unpleasant microclimate. The only thing that you can't see, since this design is completed, that you can just barely see the outline of the neighbor's house behind the tea house here, this gray thing. The women who lived in this house liked to garden in their bathing suits, or sometimes less, because it was right over the ocean. And the neighbor behind them there liked that a lot. And they would sit up in his second story window and watch. And so when Larry did the design for the yard, he built this tea structure, both as a windbreak from the westerly wind, but also from the peeping tom sector that it was going to block as well. So we're stacking functions here. We've got you know, several sectors being taken care of at once by this design. So we think of the human sectors as well. You know, we have sun, wind, and fire, and other influences like that. But there are things like the view sector and the neighbor sector being dealt with here. Neighbors are a very important sector. And gee, sometimes I'd like to turn my neighbors off, but I can't. I can only manipulate my design in relation to them. And then there are things like noise and pollution. And HOA is a big sector, uh, codes and covenants and that sort of thing. Can't even paint your house a different color because of that sector energy. Easements, family, pets, all of these things uh, are really important influences that you have to deal with. So in, when we're doing design, really sectors trump everything. You want to get your sectors right. You don't want to plant something where your dog is on patrol all the time. You don't want to do something that a neighbor is going to bust you for, those sorts of things. Another nice example of, of figuring out sectors is sometimes you can just make a sector go away, just disappear rather than having to deal with it. And this was a design by Mark Lakeman in Portland that did just that. He wanted to build, they built a bench, but because it's Portland and it's rainy, they needed to put a roof over it. But to put a roof big enough to cover the whole thing was going to require a permit, because it cost a lot of money, the project was suddenly going to get really expensive. And Mark looked at what the minimum size for a roof was, and then built a whole series of roofs that were just barely that minimum to avoid permit. So we have made the city official sector disappear in this. We haven't even had to worry about it. So this is the sort of design that you can do. So just a couple of illustrations that will be hard to see for those of you in the back, but this, so a, a fellow in, what was it, the early 2000s named Bart Anderson, who runs the uh, website resilience.org, he's one of the editors there, formerly Energy Bulletin, lives down in Palo Alto, took a course that I was teaching at, and he loved the whole idea of zones and sectors, but he lives in an apartment in Palo Alto, and he said, you know, I can't apply this to my yard, but he thought about it in applying it to his life, and he thought, okay, the zones can be the mode of transportation that I use to get somewhere. Do I walk to it? Do I ride my bike to it? Do I take public transit to it? Zone four would be things that I can only get to by driving a car. And then he looked at the sectors 
local businesses, big corporations, personal, family, friends, associations, community. These would be the different influences on his life. And he thought about how can, how can he arrange as much as possible in the inner zones here so that he hardly ever had to even take public transit? How could he stuff all kinds of things into those zones? And how could he reduce the influence of sectors like giant corporations uh, and maybe even local government and things like that? And so just an illustration that, again, I'm afraid you probably won't be able to see it unless you're close, uh, but from, from the Permaculture City, from the new book, just is looking at different sectors like transportation, government, and the job you have, and corporate influences, and populating it then with, in zone one, the corporate influence is television, small business in zone one is the local cafe, the spiritual influence in zone one is a zendo, or your own little meditation spot in your house, and so on. You go out things that you need to ride a bike to, like your job, or maybe the local Whole Foods, uh, or probably someplace a little better than that. But this is a way you can arrange your life in the sectors that you want to have and in the modes of transportation that you want to use. So we've got zones, we've got sectors. I want to introduce one other little design method, and then we'll move on to some examples. This is called matching needs to resources, or we sometimes call it needs and yields. How do you match the stuff you got a lot of with the stuff you need to do, essentially? And so if we do our assessment step for an urban environment, we can look at what is there a lot of in cities? What do cities have tons of? And those are things like there's lots of people, there's lots of buildings, there's a lot of built material, a lot of salvage stuff, city stuff sitting out on the curb. There's more money in cities than in many other places. There are more jobs and commerce, and there's a lot of innovation. So these are things that are abundant in cities. Then we look at, all right, what is scarce in cities? What isn't there an awful lot of in cities? There's not a lot of land that's easily available. There's often not a lot of organic matter and things like coffee grounds and stuff like that. Not a lot of raw materials, not a lot of time. These are all things that are scarce in cities. So if we were to match things that are abundant with things that are scarce to try to take care of our needs, we've got a lot of buildings and land is scarce, then we can use buildings as gardens. And this is designed by a guy named Hunter Bossart in Vienna. It's a building where trees are actually on the roof and trees are growing out of the windows. So he's taking something that there's lots of, there's lots of buildings, there aren't a lot of plants, and he's figuring out how to actually grow trees out of the windows. And this is not Photoshop, this is the actual building itself. Uh, there are definitely disadvantages to putting trees on tall buildings, like this little fantasy piece here. I hate to think of what happens when a branch blows off the 30th floor and drops onto the pavement. So we don't want to stick trees on everything, but vertical surfaces are great places to grow things in cities, and we've got lots of those. So again, matching resources to our needs like this. If you haven't got vertical, you've got a lot of roofs in cities. Lots of rooftop gardens, obviously a, you know, a big deal these days. People are doing lots of rooftop gardens. You can also do little container gardens. You can hear somebody growing food in garbage cans or growing it on corrugated tubing that runs down a spiral stairway, or growing it out on a balcony. So little tiny spaces to grow food. If you don't even have a space, you can have a mobile garden, or someone who's put a garden in a shopping cart, or someone who's just nailed some wheels onto a raised bed and drags it around in where the sunny spot happens to be, or someone who doesn't have any place and they just put a greenhouse on the back of their pickup truck. So we just get creative about these ideas. What do we have? What do we need? How do we match them up? 
or hanging gardens, just pieces of cloth or old two-liter soda bottles or canvas or whatever. Just grow, grow stuff anywhere you can. There's a huge amount of growing room. So we're trying to, to use things, something that is scarce land and mix it with something that we want, which is, which is plants in this case. Or you can just do more high-density growing. Um, aquaponics, which is a little bit controversial because it involves the growing of fish at very high densities, but those fish then put a lot of manure into the water. That manure-filled water is then sprinkled onto gravel beds, and then the bacteria living in the gravel convert that manure into fertilizer, and plants grow like mad. It's organic uh, because it is using fish manure and biological processes to turn it into soil. And these plants here are 28 days old from the six-pack that they were transplanted out of. So things grow really fast, right? So very good for very small spaces, food deserts, places with toxic soil, places where you can't grow in the soil. It's, it's a place where you might arrive at aquaponics as a solution. I'm not going to say we should do it everywhere. I like growing plants in soil mostly, but some places where you can, it might make sense. We might arrive at that as a solution. And then the other question is, okay, who's got land? There's land around, so who has it? And one answer is community gardens. They've really taken off these days. There's Seattle's community garden program has a waiting list of 1,300 people on it. So it may not be a quick way to get access to land, but they're wonderful social places as well. You get to trade garden tips with, with neighbors. Schools, school gardens are a huge thing these days. California is one of many states that is mandating by X date. Every school in the state is supposed to have a school garden or have a school garden program. A lot of states are doing that. Uh, and volunteers at school gardens very often get to take home the produce if the kids don't need it all. Also, apartment buildings, offices, churches. Churches often have a lot of land associated with them, and part of their mandate is to serve their community. So they're very good candidates for, for garden programs. This apartment building, the landlord there was not going to listen to anybody talk about gardening on his land until the people living in the building wrote up a formal proposal showing how much he was paying on landscaping, how much he would save, a contractual agreement that they would have that they would take care of the land like this. And the landlord said, you just made it pencil out. You can do it. So you make a proposal to the landowner that they're going to go for. And you end up being able to garden on in your apartment land. And office buildings, Google actually has a, I can't remember the exact title, but it's like director of, of corporate horticulture or something like that. But it's a, a job title at a number of corporations now um, for employee-supported agriculture as well. <clears throat> so we've got urban agriculture is something that people are trying to do more of. I want to talk about a really cool project that we're going about a decade ago to identify land that could be used for urban gardening. Oh, oh Epson Service Center. Well, that's pretty neat. Shall we try it again? <laughs> I think we have a backup projector if this isn't going to work. Press yes button. Interesting. Yeah, I know. I've never seen that one before. <laughs> this is the new one. Yeah. This is the new one. Oh, well, that's on warranty. No problem. We'll just. Does Paul have one? Uh, I thought there was another projector around, but we'll see. Take a minute for the fan to cool the thing down. So I'm gonna, what, what I will do is talk about this project because you don't really need the pictures and we'll just see if this thing's gonna come back. 
It's called the Diggable Cities Initiative, and it was set up by the Department of Urban Planning, some graduate students at Portland State University, and the city. And they wanted to encourage urban agriculture. So their plan was to identify any of the places owned by the city, any land owned by the city of Portland that could be used for agriculture. And what they came up with is anything from little postal stamp sized things in the urban core to enormous tracts of land uh, out at the airport. Still blinking red. 